Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you look across industries, you look at companies that are known for their design leadership or producing things that resonate for people that are meaningful. You see a lot of Art Center alumni, that's for sure. And I think overall, it's the recognition that when you have a product that is complete, that hasn't traded off experience for aesthetics or the other way around, but both are present. And that's something that I think is so important, that the interaction, the human experience with that thing is as rich and thoughtful as that physical form, then you have something that's really powerful that people are attracted to. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. In the two decades since she graduated from Art Center with a degree in transportation design, Tisha Johnson has blazed trails for female design leaders in industries dominated by men. Her success has been propelled by her genuine passion for each phase of the design process, from research to experimenting with materials to aligning aesthetic beauty with human need. The results of her efforts are written into her ever-evolving career, which includes transformative stints heading up design teams at Volvo and Herman Miller en route to her current role as head of global design at Whirlpool. Tisha's growing list of achievements has done little to dampen her palpable excitement for the fundamentals of a job she views in its simplest terms as making things that make people's lives better. In order to do that well, she's committed herself to a lifelong learning process as a designer and leader, both in the studio and out. In fact, she never misses an opportunity to use her twin passions for surfing and motorcycling as laboratories for design thinking and doing. For Tisha, good design is a feeling, and that feeling, in a word, is freedom. It's part of the purity of spirit and infectious enthusiasm she brings to everything she does. Even now, from her perch atop the upper rungs of corporate America, she speaks of her new role strategizing future generations of home appliances with the reverence and excitement of someone who has just landed her first job. 
I was particularly taken by Tish's description of the design process as a dialogue between materials and maker, which echoed themes in my book about the discoveries that happen through physical engagement. Over the course of a conversation that felt at times like a masterclass on design strategy, we also covered her thoughts on how research and careful listening guides the team she leads, the role of empathy in design, and how her work at Whirlpool, in connection to what she calls the hearth of the home, can move her to tears. Please enjoy my conversation with Tisha Johnson. Tisha Johnson, welcome to Change Lab. It's so good to see you. Oh, it's great to see you too. Thank you. I think it would be a good idea, if you don't mind, for us to begin by letting listeners know about you and about your work, and then we'll go into some more specifics. But if you could talk to us a little bit about your tour of duty, really, since graduating <laughs> from Art Center, which was in late 90s, right? Was, yeah, 1999. Yeah, August, right. actually. So I started right away at Volvo and was there for about seven years working in that concept center, but I was working on both advanced work and pre-production work. I left Volvo for about four years. I spent a couple of years working in another advanced studio, also in Southern California, for an automotive supplier. I was working with initiatives that were strategic and global, working with their group of studios around the world. This was with Millikan and Company. And I was focused specifically on automotive strategic initiatives. After a couple of years, I started my own design consultancy called TrendViz. And I worked really across different industries, mostly automotive, but you know, I had other clients. Sony Electronics had an advanced studio not too far away. Lots of diverse, interesting clients. And after a couple of years with that, I was welcomed back to Volvo and really jumped in as the brand was now really a poised for transition and transformation, I should say. So I started in the California studio, but I very quickly ended up in Sweden. And there I was working on both advanced but production work. I'd had a design selected, which ultimately ended up being part of the S90 program. So I worked on the S90 and then from there really started working on cars that were part of their next generation of vehicles. And then from Volvo, let's take you all the way to Whirlpool, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So from there, I ended up at Herman Miller Group. And moved and back to the United States at that point? Yeah. So I was in Sweden. And it, you know, I, I did a little bit of volleying back and forth. I was in Sweden, back in the US for Volvo, working back at that advanced studio, now running the North American design operation. And 
after I had returned to Sweden, I ended up with a, just an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Herman Miller. I have such mm. reverence for the brand and the work they do. And so I jumped in and ended up back in the U.S. and in Michigan and just had enough time to work on a couple of really fun projects and had an opportunity that I knew I couldn't pass up, which was with Whirlpool leading the design group globally. And to give more dimension and nuance to your amazing story, I want to weave in surfing and motorcycles and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and yoga. And I'm interested in how these kinds of passions of yours actually find their way into the sort of larger frame of Tisha and her creative enterprises. Mm, that's great. You know, you really can't separate them out, even if I'm not actively surfing on a regular basis right now. It informs my process and it's a reflection of who I am, but it's also integrated into my design work. So there's an influence back and forth. And, you know, we've talked about that before, this, this idea. You know, when it comes to any activity, I love to cycle, uh, do a lot of cycling. And I think it's pretty obvious that I'm a designer who's into cycling. Because I will notice the sound of the gears shifting and the gliding and the beautiful elegance of that sound that it is in full synchronicity with my body and that I'm connected to the mechanisms and every bit of that experience kind of runs through me and I have awareness and appreciation for it. I think about the elegance of the design itself how it integrates with my own body mechanics and how I'm using my human power to push. And of course, that takes me into new places I could never be without it. Mm. So there's, there's a lot of experience in the moment. And it's, it's quite obvious that I'm filtering it through my design lens. And then I'm pulling that back over when I'm designing and I'm thinking about the elegance of a moment and how we can create beautiful experiences for people so that you may be doing one thing, but we're enhancing that thing and really lifting it. I have a couple of follow-up questions on that. So beautifully stated, does the energy of that experience on the bicycle find its way into the studio and vice versa? Oh my gosh, absolutely. You know, it's definitely, there's an invigoration, of course, from the experience itself. I am drawn to, to activities that are very, they're visceral, they're very energetic. And there's something that happens for me that's, that's very important. I, I, I really find my Zen when I have a, a whole lot of sensory input. And so that, that excitement and that energy that I get and that I'm feeling, 
that is motivation in my life. And that feeling, I like to have that feeling. So that naturally ends up in my studio environment. And likewise, design itself is very energizing for me. So you'll see it on my face and, and it'll be it'll be part of uh, the experience. And from the way you, you stated it too, there's obviously something that the body knows that's informing your experience as well, right? That you're in touch with the body in a certain kind of way. Yes. I mean, what interests me clearly is that there's another context in which something happens that's relevant to the creative process in the studio and and that those are mutually nourishing endeavors. But there's something else particular to how you talked about it, that you're in touch with what your body knows or you're learning from the experience of your body in motion and that that translates as well into the studio. Yeah, absolutely. You know, of course, I go a few different directions, but when you think about design itself, specifically when you are creating, when you're physically making a thing, you could start with sketching. There's a, a body connection. We actually learn how to specifically move our bodies as we sketch, as an example. And you, you learn about this because you can create a lever and you can begin to become more exact and intentional with the lines that you create by having this awareness of your body. And then you you practice that over and over and over again. Much like an athlete might do, you know, you think of a basketball player, it's the repetitive, just keep shooting and shooting and shooting. And so that you have that muscle memory and it's integrated, then you don't call on it consciously anymore. It's just there. So that's one aspect of what I think about. The other, of course, is the tuning. When you're in the experience, you know, whatever your passion is outside of design, whatever your creative endeavor, these other things that we do, in particular, for me, it's cycling and surfing. Those experiences, they're informing me when I'm outside of those spaces because I'm spending so much time connecting and drawing connection between the elemental thing. It might be a surfboard and a wave. It might be a bicycle and tarmac. Those objects and then my body connection to those. So I have a a heightened awareness of it that I'm sure informs me when I'm in the studio space. One of the stories that you told a few years ago when we talked about the book was from your first figure drawing class. And you told the story to give evidence of a kind of dialogue. Your anecdote just now about sketching was relevant, right? That there's a kind of dialogue between the material and the hand. There's a kind of dialogue between the charcoal and the paper. And I'd like to invite you to tell that story again, because it was pivotal for me. It was such a an incredibly important story for how I began to conceptualize the making process. And it seems entirely relevant too, to what you're saying right now. Gosh, I, I really love that that was such a a pivotal story for you because it was truly pivotal for me in my development, Hmm. ultimately as a designer, I was 
taking one of my first sketch classes, courses. It was not at Art Center. And I was working on my AA and had one art class and was it was a figure drawing class. I took that class because I, I knew that I wanted to stay connected to that process, but I wasn't worried about anything transferring into Art Center. So there I was in this figure drawing class and the instructor talked to us on probably day one about the conversation we would have with the charcoal, the paper, and ourselves. And as we pushed the charcoal into the paper, we would feel a reaction and the coarseness of the paper would create a very specific, you know, thing that we were looking at, a very specific texture, line, quality. And we would respond and we would say, aha, you did that. Well, in that case, I'll give you this. And then we would push the line. Mm. And it would be this iterative dialogue between ourselves and the tools. She was absolutely right. There was discovery in that. So you show up and you think, I'm going to make this line. But because of the nature of those materials, you will get feedback that is unexpected and outcomes that are unexpected. And so then you begin to move with that and you decide what direction you want to go with that. You may recall that so much of what interests me is how we move into the creative space that is uncertain how we find our way into a place where we don't know and what we do in the making process to discover. And one fundamental of that is engaging with materials. And deeper than that is the dialogue with material and the body and material as a form of discovery, something you can't know beforehand. There's no vision that you're manifesting. You're going to a place of uncertainty and learning from that very interaction. Absolutely. You know, another name for it is a growth mindset, but it's allowing for discovery. And allowing the process to to be a guide. To guide. Yeah. Right. Another way in which dialogue, conversation, as you say, which I love, ensues was how the research process functions Mm -hmm. and how research itself is a kind of dialogue in the design process where it's not like you conduct your research and then you design your thing, right? It's in fact something that is non-chronological where you're grabbing at something, learning about something, making, engaging, applying, going back, thinking. And that research ultimately is integral to making, not separate or prelude to making. Absolutely. It's so true. There's a a couple of different aspects related to that. In my experience, there have been times where, you know, I've been given a very open brief or just a seed thought 
that the team then will begin to explore. And these could be very open statements. You know, literally, mobility in 2040, you know, or, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Okay, go. (laughs) Just go. (laughs) Right. So, you know, that is wonderful. And it's exactly what do you do with that? So you can begin to start to figure out how you're going to inform or what direction you're going to go in. And for sure, research becomes foundational there because it's going to guide you into different areas of exploration. And then if it, like, you know, any part of the design process, it's, it's a funnel, you'll start to, to tighten it. But it'll, it'll begin with a very open process. And as you gain insights and you learnings, then that'll start to determine, oh, this is our brief, actually. This is what we need to be talking about. So an example like that, the team was given a very general topic. And the brief really ended up being what value can we bring back to people as they move through their daily commute? And that led a team to conclude that 26 precious minutes that you have on average in North America for your one-way daily commute, that was something to really dig into and solve for. And that team determined that what they really wanted to talk about was giving time back to people, Mm -hmm. not giving Mm -hmm. productivity, not giving the best meeting notes while they were driving, but time. And they pictured it with an individual opening a book, analog, reading a book, I think what I find so remarkable about that is one assumes, at least in the design world, and one would assume particularly in the world of transportation design, that you'd get a very specific brief, that it would be, here it is, now start wrestling with it, right? Mm -hmm. But this was even a kind of step before that, in which there was a kind of freedom that you were given to explore and to almost make the question as part of the creative process. Make the brief, right? You didn't know that issue about time before you started. It was only through allowing yourself and your team to go through a process that you discovered that. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. is that an accurate way to characterize it? I think it's definitely an accurate way to describe it. And there were times when the brief was very tight. And there were times when it was very open. And that was the intriguing right. thing about working in that studio. The team tackled across years the the topic of mobility in different ways. And I connected to that project at different times in different ways. And at other times, the brief would be very focused on, you know, something that was of interest and wanting to, to crack open in the next six months. But those open briefs were... So yeah. intriguing, of course. Yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from those. I mean, sometimes, obviously, it doesn't need to be tighter. 
but there, there is so much to learn. And the other thing that I love about it too is that it didn't culminate in a thesis or a statement. It culminated in a question, mm-hmm. right? The mm-hmm. question of the value of time in those 26 minutes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it wasn't, this is what you want to do. It was, how do we? And therefore opening up to addressing, not necessarily even answering, but addressing that question as part of your work and part of the development of the design. Absolutely. There's just so much richness in that. And it definitely taps into something that I often talk about as a designer, which is to really understand, get at what is the human need. And that's really what we want to uncover. So often we we want to get right to an answer based on what a statement, what somebody is saying. But usually, if you're really listening carefully, you'll recognize there's a bigger need here. They might be complaining Mm -hmm. about some specific interaction point, but there's actually a bigger need. What is that? And then we try to, as designers, we really try to hear that most clearly and then solve. Right, right. Which leads to another way in which we can talk about the design process as, I mean, we just talked about research as a kind of dialogue and a kind of back and forth. But the other discovery that I find so intriguing is the multiple dialogues that you're necessarily involved in, the multiple conversations you're involved in as you proceed in your creative work with the products, with the materials. Some designers talk about they have a kind of conversation with earlier products, earlier products of that company, earlier products that they have created. And there's a a kind of talking that happens among them. There's a conversation, obviously, with consumers. There's a conversation with a particular kind of culture. And I want to get into that, too, with you, too, to understand the global nature of your work. There's the the client, past work, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I wonder if you might discuss how these multiple dialogues operate for you and Again, any kind of story that you might want to tell that helps ground what that might mean. Such a great question. The designer really is an interpreter with all of these different inputs. And you might say that each function or each disciplinary set across an enterprise, they're very comfortable with their language and I think designers are able to understand all of these languages and synthesize into value for the consumer. Something we've been talking about in my studio is I'm always very comfortable saying the consumer, we're we're solving things for the consumer. In fact, that's languaging based on where I work. As a designer, I'm really solving for a human need. It's for the person. And so, therefore, it's a conversation with the people who are interacting with our products as much as it is a conversation with our executive team as it is across the patch. And certainly within our own studio, it's dialogue around the group.
had this word global in a lot of your titles, and I'm interested how you navigate that when you think about human need, consumer need, client need that exists in all these different parts of the world and in all these different cultures and, and how you navigate the diversity of experience of the human, the consumer. I really believe it begins with empathy, first of all. And that's the beauty of what designers inherently bring. They show up with tons of curiosity, interest in other people, their experiences, but they do something special with it. They assimilate it into their own person, their own experience, and they feel it. And then they're triggered to solve and make things as wonderful or, or you know, just as, as great as they possibly can. So it does start with empathy. When we're creating teams, it's really important to make sure that those teams also represent a diverse viewpoint. It's, it's critical. And when you have a global team, you have then the good fortune of you know, automatically being able to see things from these different regional perspectives. So I always, I always like that interaction. You have, a, you have one team, which is global. So we're together looking at things from different vantage points and then pulling that together. And the learning must be so amazingly rich in that context, right? I mean, oh that- my gosh. I can tell you it's, it's been incredible at Whirlpool to see what is driving the designers from around the world on the team. So much, they, they bring so much richness to the conversation. I was in a presentation the other day, and by the time they got done with it, I was crying. And mm. I, I said to them, I don't think in my entire career I've ever cried at work. <laughs> Just, I couldn't think of a time when I had. What got you so much? Well, you know, to begin with, we're, we're in the heart space of the home. So it's, it's an emotional place to be, right? The, right? We're in the center of the home. When you think of, especially when you think of cooking, of course, you, that's if you think of a party, where does everybody end up? They end up in the kitchen. Why? Because it's, it's really where all this love and emotion and expression is happening. So it's already a, a beautiful place to be. And then they were telling a particular story that had to do with making sure that more individuals could really not only operate in the space, but thrive and have their passion for cooking enabled. And it was beautiful. And what they did was sincere and simple and impactful. And deeply human, quite clearly. It was very human. Yeah. Maybe to ground some of this, I would like to ask you to tell the story about the child seat in the Volvo XC90, which is such a beautiful idea and such a, a powerful concept. And it might integrate a lot of the things we're talking about and help 
sort of ground for listeners some of these larger concepts that we're dealing with? Sure. The child safety seat was really, from the designer point of view, it was an opportunity to really demonstrate how much value we can bring to a moment. So, of course, with the child seat itself, it's packed full of wonderful technology that really keeps your family safer, keeps the child safer. And in particular, we'd want to keep the child rearward facing, and that's really just the the best setup should you have to face impact, should there be an accident. And what we saw as a design team, and really a, a small group of designers, they really could see an opportunity to enhance interaction and engagement between parent and child. Because in that rear facing setup, there was eye contact between child and parent if you set it up in such a way that there was no there was no seat between the, the two of you. And so that was the the physical setup. And so the parent would actually be in the what would be the, like the back seat? The back seat. Child on a platform. In the front, exactly. Where you would ride shotgun, except facing the other right, way. Right, rearward <laughs> facing. And right. at Ingress Egress, the designers had a really wonderful way of making sure that the, the way in which you could just easily access the seat, you could get the, it up to a nice level, you'd have it facing the parent, so easy to put your child in. And the whole thing was just this elevated experience. And anybody you know, if you've put your child in and out of a car seat, you know it's not an easy thing. But Mm -hmm. the team really just made the whole experience elegant and connected. It was really about connecting parent and child. Mm -hmm. From Volvo to Herman Miller to Whirlpool, transition from cars to furniture to appliances. I mean, some of the fundamentals you've articulated. What are the differences? You know, the differences, of course, have to do with the just the very products themselves and the different enablers that you find that are inherent to the products that make the experience what it needs to be. So for instance, if you talk about Herman Miller, you naturally think a lot about seating, of course, and the materiality is everything. And it's fundamental setups with the ergonomy and just the science of seating and how to create the absolute performance based on the relationship of the material and mechanics. And, you know, at times you let the material innovation can allow for, for much more interesting adjustment and natural connection between the the person and the experience. Right. So, you know, that's some difference there between that with Whirlpool, there's current running through, there's inherent energy that is flowing through the products and um, 
the interaction is multifaceted. There's a, a whole lot that's happening uh, in, in a moment. And so these are things that are different, things that are similar. It really always begins with empathy, and it always is focusing on putting the, the person in the center of the problem. Mm-hmm. As the essential conversation, as we were just saying. Right. Mm-hmm. right. We talk a lot and have for years in the design world about the necessity of design being at the table, quote unquote, that we don't want uh, the designer to come in at the end to make things look pretty. But there is obviously some really, as you've been pointing out this entire conversation, some deep, important, significant, substantive issues that the design conversation brings to the development of of an experience. So now you're a a leading executive in a really large firm. And I'm wondering, uh, and I think our students would be really interested in hearing this from you, is design at the table? Does it have the voice that we always imagined it needed to have? Are you able to bring that forward? Is it heard? Is it listened to? Great question. Quick answer is Yes. <laughs> so if we start there, I have to really focus on Whirlpool here because we are so enabled. My gosh. And, you know, I, I really see the interest from our leadership. I see that we are right there where we need to be having the conversations. And there's true interest in what we have to say and enablement for our process. So, you know, I just think this is fantastic. That's what you want. When I look back, I think design is central to any brand or company that's really producing products that that resonate with people, products experiences that resonate with people. So I've you know been fortunate to to continue to be at companies that value the voice of design, give it the space, the leadership that it deserves. Yeah. And out of curiosity, can you in your experience trace how we got there? Was it simply a matter of kind of screaming, we've got something to say here that can make a difference and, and here's the proven success. I mean, that might be it. I don't know. Yeah. You mean just just in industry in general, how we got there, how? Yeah. Yeah. And why design has a seat at the table now in a way that it didn't a couple of decades ago? It's a good question, Lauren. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because I, I like to think that that Art Center is participates in that. I like to think that the college has made a difference in that too. And that people like yourself who have gone through and know what you know are, are finally be, being heard and listened to in a certain kind of way. My gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Art Center is part of it. I mean, if you look across industries, you look at companies that are known for their design leadership or producing things that resonate for people that are meaningful. You see, you see a lot of Art Center alumni, that's for sure. And I think overall it's the recognition that when you have a product that is complete, that hasn't traded off experience for aesthetics or the other way around, but both are present, 
And that's something that I think is so important, that the interaction, the human experience with that thing is as rich and thoughtful as that physical form, then you have something that's really powerful that people are attracted to. Right. It's just curious to me how that evolved and that it has evolved and that you believe that we've reached a point of significance there, probably far, you know, still a ways to go, but that we have reached a point of significance there is very encouraging, I think. Yeah, I, I think so. And I believe that, you know, it's one of those chicken and egg things. I believe that it's, it's the conversation we've been having all day. It's one thing informing another that mm-hmm. feedback comes back and it, it mm-hmm. causes there to be growth in an area. But when you look at the composition of we were talking about the C-suite, you see much more emphasis now on strategic thinking, being right there. And design is at its best. It's, it, design is innovation. It is strategic thinking. You know, as a way to maybe wrap up our conversation, there are a couple of things that I think students at Art Center could really benefit from hearing from you. And so I have a couple of questions in that regard. The first really is, if I could invite you to reflect on your experience as a woman in industrial design, a woman in transportation design. I don't know how many women were in your class, but I can't imagine there were very many. And what that experience has been like and how this conversation, this dialogue, this research, this human-centeredness opened up and made possibility through being able to have some kind of gender diversity within the context of what was always pretty strongly a, a boy's world. So I wanted to invite you to talk about that a little bit. I'm so glad you asked the question. And it really, I think, also shows that our consciousness is shifting. My experience going through Art Center, I would often in the transportation department, I would often be the only woman in the studio. And that continued through my career. I would often be the only woman in the room in the car design studio. And so that, you know, naturally there's... unique, interesting experience, of course, because you recognize that you're another in the room or the other in the room is a better way to say it. And so there's also lots of opportunity in that to really help the team appreciate a different perspective without, you know, making up assumptions about it so you can form it from your experience and it's not always easy something i didn't i didn't used to talk about for some reason i just wanted to focus on my contribution as a designer but now i think it's important yeah yeah, Yeah. i think it's important to acknowledge oh yeah there's bias and there's moments and right and things we need to do to make sure that it's better for other women Right, right. 
Was it a fight for you in those moments? Did it feel alienating or kind of intimidating on some level? Or was it in in its own way an empowering experience, which I could also imagine? Mm -hmm. I would say it mostly felt empowering. But there were moments when it, you know, definitely was frustrating or, you know, just really wasn't a, a positive experience. To be clear, the colleagues that I worked with for so many years, you know, I really felt were so supportive and really came from a, a good place. You know, I, I can think of an experience in which I was in a room working through some problems and there was a, a supplier who, as three of us were in the room, two male colleagues and myself, the supplier would not address me, would not look me in the eyes and speak to me as we were tackling some technical problems at the time. And uh, when I talked to my male colleagues about it, they really thought that maybe there was a, a hierarchy that the individual was recognizing in the room. But in fact, we were all junior designers. It didn't add up. And so I think as we it continued, my colleagues then could see, oh, wow, this happens. This is an experience for her. And mm. so there was opportunity then for them to support. But, you know, so you have these experiences along the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I believe deeply as, as an educator that it's so critical that our students hear this um, and hear about your experience both the trials that you in, invariably went through, but also the triumphs too, of the paving away, opening things up, mm -hmm. changing the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel very fortunate now to be in a role where I've had those experiences. I can support the, the team here. And I would say not just the women in the group, but a diverse set of team members. And we all have different experiences, but we can understand these common struggles and then support each other. Lovely. Yeah. Well, my last question really gathers up a lot of what we've been talking about. And, you know, the book Make to Know was written in large measure to students at Art Center who often express to me and faculty communicate this to me as well, that they f felt stymied by not feeling like they had everything figured out before they began to make <laughs> what they were going to make, right? That they needed to know beforehand all parts of it somehow before they could actually go. Until they could, they were sort of paralyzed and not able to, yeah. to move forward. And so much of what you've talked about, which is deep and I think profound and incredibly rich, is I think a wonderful message to them. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that and maybe offer the students of Art Center Day, some words of encouragement where that's concerned. What an opportunity to, to speak specifically to that because I remember being a student and having more than one moment in which I was a bit frozen because I thought I could really mess up here. I, I felt like I should know more before I started. And 
I think in some way that experience can, it continues. There are moments when you feel like you, you want to know more before you act. And really, the, the truth is the journey is the process that is what you need to do is you need to go on that journey. You need to not have all of the answers. And in fact, one thing that I love to share with students is there's actually not one great answer here. There's many great answers. Mm -hmm. You're just going to decide which path to choose. You're going to decide which story to tell here. So don't worry about being on the wrong path. This is just the one that you chose to pull forward. And if you feel like there was something wonderful, you could go back there and you could talk about it another time. You can get to it. So there's nothing to really fear around that. Beautiful. Yeah. And uh, I've said on numerous occasions, what I like to think is that we teach courage at Art Center, mm-hmm. the courage to go into these places of uncertainty, as you say, not knowing exactly where you're heading. Absolutely. But allowing your engagement, your process, your making to bring things to reveal itself, to allow discovery to happen in the richest way possible and in a way that you could never figure out beforehand anyway, none of us could. Absolutely. It can only have happened through the journey. Yeah. This has been a lovely journey to take with you, Tisha. Really, you you are such an inspiration and so thoughtful and so beautifully spoken. I, I'm very grateful. So thank you. Lauren, I'm really honored to be able to talk with you. So thank you. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Lauren Mahoney, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. Please take a moment to support us. You can do this by heading to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show. And while you're at it, Share us with someone who is curious about the creative process. That's it for this week on Change Lab. <laughs>